It's all right. There's a there's a full bottle. Lauren was already like, "Don't drink yeah. a bunch of Denny." <laughs> Fred's like, "Here you go." Yep. <laughs> so, again, you did, sorry, you Lauren. Yeah, you didn't pour it. You don't game get, on. You don't get to make the rules here. No, but I'll play along. <laughs> This is episode 305 of Bourbon Pursuit, the podcast featuring news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman, and before we start today's podcast, talking to our good friend Denny Potter of Makers Mark, here's your weekly bourbon news update. For the last few years, Buffalo Trace has been hard at work on its $1.2 billion infrastructure investment, some of which includes new barrel warehouses. At a capacity of 58,800 barrels each, the addition of 10 new warehouses has given an on-site barrel inventory of over 1 million aging whiskey barrels. They will continue to add future warehouses at the same size and at a rate of one new warehouse every four months. Good friend of the show, David Jennings, who you probably know as Rare Bird 101, recently launched his second Kickstarter campaign for a new book called Wild Turkey Musings. After going through 280 posts that span five years of work on his blog, he compiled words that capture his passion for wild turkey, but also provide value for learning and more about the brand. The ebook starts at $15, with the physical book starting at $35, and you can reserve yours now on Kickstarter. Now moving into bourbon release news. Michter's Distillery will begin shipping the 2021 release of its 10-year bourbon. It has been stored in Michter's heat-cycled warehouses and will be bottled at 94.4 proof. It has a suggested retail price of $150. Last week, we had the opportunity to join an in-person tasting and the unveiling of Square Six, the first bourbon to be released by the Evan Williams Bourbon Experience in downtown Louisville. Square Six designates the original plot of land where Evan Williams built Kentucky's first commercial distillery back in 1783. The Square Six mash bill consists of 52% corn, 35% rye, and 13% malted barley. Square Six high rye bourbon was aged for five years before being bottled at 95 proof and will have a retail price of $90. Square Six will also continually change the style of whiskey to be released as more experimentation barrels come of age. Rabbit Hole has a new addition to its high-end Founders collection of whiskeys. It has recently released a 15-year-old cask-strength Kentucky Straight Bourbon finished in Japanese Mizunara Oak for one year. It's bottled at 114.2 proof, there will only be 1,403 bottles available, and at a suggested retail price of $1,500 per bottle. Step over White Claw because it's time for bourbon to make its way into summer. Jim Beam is launching two ready-to-drink canned cocktails, Jim Beam Classic Highball and the Jim Beam Ginger Highball. These will come in 355 milliliter slender cans at 5% ABV each, and they'll be rolling out nationally at select retailers for $10 for a four-pack. And New Riff is releasing its newest and oldest whiskey yet, a six-year, 100% malted rye whiskey. There will be a limited amount released this spring in Kentucky, and more to roll out through their distribution network later this year, and has a suggested retail price of $60. And Blue Run Spirits is launching Blue Run 13.5-year-old single-barrel cash-strength bourbon in 10 separate limited-edition bottlings from, well, you guessed it, 10 different barrels. Each is hand-numbered to denote the proof, the barrel number, and the bottling date. The modern design by Devin McKinney showcases the brand's signature butterfly medallion, which is a nod to the Kentucky State butterfly, the Viceroy. 
It's housed in a black lacquered display box made of sustainable birch with an imprinted gold leaf. These will also have a retail price of $230. For today's episode, we have Denny Potter back on the show. You may remember him as the previous master distiller for Heaven Hill, but he's now over at Maker's Mark. We talk about career growth as a master distiller and the decisions that you have to make when figuring out scale while also maintaining consistency. With that, enjoy today's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Ron Coulter, who writes me on fredminnick.com. Hi, Fred. On a future episode of Above the Char, I wish you would explain the three-tier system that always comes up on Bourbon Pursuit when you all are talking distribution. Thanks, Ron. Uh, You bet, Ron. And uh, unfortunately, I only have a short amount of time here to dedicate to the subject of the three-tier system. It's very complex. It's uh, deeply rooted in our history. And and it all comes down to like how our country reacted after Prohibition. So Prohibition ends in 1933, and our government continues to, you know, basically continues to have a lot of temperance moods, and it has a lot of belief that alcohol should continue to be regulated, uh, but they didn't want to have like a blanket federal regulation over it outside of like the you know, Alcohol Administration Act. They wanted the actual governments to come down from like the states. And so they allowed like states to essentially be their own countries. Uh, so you had states all over the country creating their own laws. And in some cases, you know, there were there were really weird laws like in New York uh, did not allow women to distill. In Alabama, they created all kinds of uh, laws to prohibit where alcohol could be sold uh, to include having dry counties. To this day, Kentucky, places like Texas and Tennessee have dry counties. So you still see a lot of those early post-prohibition laws on the books in some places. But it really comes down to the states are, you know, basically if you think of if you think of the United States as like one country, and when it comes to alcohol, every state is its own country. And so within that system, the supplier, the distiller, is the first step. That's the first step in the tier. The second step is the distributor. And in every state, the distributor has to have a special license for that state. So a distributor cannot just have one blanket license over the United States without getting approval in every single state. And so that's why when a a brand is new to the game, you know, they're like, why can't I just be everywhere? Well, the fact is, is they have to get a special agreement in Rhode Island, a special agreement in Florida, a special agreement in Texas. So they have to do all of this legwork just to get into one state. So the the second tier is the distributor. And the third tier is either the retailer or the bar. And the bylaw, and depending on the state, you know, things are changing uh, rapidly. There's a lot of effort to get rid of a lot of these old laws. But, uh, you know, for the most part, retailers and bars cannot buy directly from the supplier or the distiller. They have to buy from the distributor. But that is changing. 
And like I had said, there's been a lot of efforts in states to change the laws, but it's happening at state levels. So in Kentucky, you are allowed to buy directly from a distillery, and the uh, bars and retailers are allowed to buy directly from consumers if a product is out of distribution. So there's a lot of things that are changing that are making the world a better place for the consumer to buy rare whiskeys. However, with all of those changes, more complications have come. So the three-tier system, my friends, although I said it was uh, complicated and I did my best here to describe it in a short amount of time, uh, it is not going away at any point, and it's only just getting more complicated by the day. But I appreciate Ron for that question, and I hope that helps answer your curiosity about the three-tier system. But if you want to be like Ron and uh, get your question read on Bourbon Pursuit, be sure to hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. And if I like it, I'll read it and do my best to answer the question. That's this week's Above the Char. Be safe out there, everybody. Cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 0002703. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or thebourbonconcierge.com and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to the episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. The whole gang here today talking about Maker's Mark and more importantly, the man that has been on the show last time he was on was back in 2017 so we're looking at 
three plus years now yeah, since he's been, been that long. long. Wow. Time flies. I know. Yeah. And he was with someone else back then too. I know. Oh, We're going to get some juicy inside scoop. Oh, maybe. I know. <laughs> he's going to get out all the shit. Oh, Why'd oh, I come oh. here? <laughs> Did that all. I knew what I was getting into. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys don't shock me anymore. Yeah. That's why he brought bourbon. I know. And you've heard his voice already, but you know, Denny Potter is a, a good friend of the show. He's a good friend to all of us here. And it's, it's good to be able to have him come on and We've talked about his his past and his story back on episode 108, and we're almost up to like episode 300 now. So it's it's been a while. So if you've never heard his history, you can go back to episode 108, and that was back when he was at uh, his former company. We'll kind of talk about progression mm-hmm. and career and everything like that. And so any any kind of color commentary before we kind of kick this off, guys? Well, Denny to me is like uh, is the is the best like interview in in bourbon. Uh, for like uh, when you want to talk like science and and everything, because he has like uh, he has like a really great way of breaking things down for anybody. And so and and he also he also is very transparent. So even if he's got the little thumb of a company over him saying he can't say something, he'll say it anyway for you. Yeah, and, and they're not here today. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. Save him from himself. Yeah. So. <laughs> Somehow we got through the PR mess and just got him here on his own. Yeah. Listen, if they don't know what a mess I am by now, then that's probably their. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Andy's got one of the best pedigrees in bourbon. Gosh, he's been to all the best major players, you know. So he's got yeah. one of the. He's got like all the banners, you know, in his gym, you know. And he's a huge. He's a huge music fan too. I remember meeting his parents and talking music. You know, we were at a. I don't remember what show we were at. One, whiskey Fest or Whiskey Live or some fest. I don't remember. New Orleans, New Orleans. Oh yeah. So, and I was just hanging out with his parents and we were all talking about music. And so anytime I get to talk about, you know, like tears for fears or something like that with somebody, it's just cool. Just, just jives. Love it. Yeah. So you've heard his voice. We talked about it enough. So of course, Denny Potter, master distiller at Maker's Mark. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Kenny. Good to be back. Yeah. I can't believe it's 2017. That's Man, back in the good old days. Going on four years. I know, I know. Back when I could find Pappy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if you could find Pappy back then. So let's let's go ahead and let's just dive into this then. So let's kind of talk about the progression. We all kind of know that you all, you came from Heaven Hill. You have, a, as Ryan alluded, a strong pedigree and background. And I kind of want to, you know, put all on the table first. Like, what was the, uh, the culminating kind of choice that made you want to move from, you know, Heaven Hill and kind of switching teams that we were kind of talking about before this show started? It seems like uh, if you get to this level, it's almost like trading NFL players at this point. Right. Like you're you're at the top of your game. So kind of talk about what that was like. Yeah, I mean, and I think to explain, you know, how I got to that point to make that decision, you, you got to really start with, you know, where I started. You know, it's, um, I know that I've worked at a lot of different plants, but I've really only been with two companies. One being the company I'm with now, which, you know, obviously is Maker's Mark. It's my second stint at Maker's, but Maker's is obviously a part of Beam Suntory. Which, which is a, you know, a larger organization. So, you know, in 1998, uh, in January of 98 is when I started out at Jim Beam. I started out at Claremont, um, which was, you know, if, if the, the one thing about like my career that I've been extremely fortunate is the people that I've been able to work with, you know, directly in operations. So it all kind of, it all started back then, you know, I started out in the lab at Beam at Claremont and then, you know, moved over to Makers in 2003 which, you know, obviously we're all owned by the same parent company. And then, you know, when I was, I was at Makers for seven years and when I was with Makers, uh, you know, our parent company bought 
the rum distillery, mm-hmm. which you guys have heard this story before, bought Cruise and Rum down in St. Croix. Well, they had asked me to go run that operation for three years as general manager. And the whole caveat to that was, you know, I, you know, I was assistant master distiller at Makers at the time, um, director of distillery and environmental operations. So I had a great job, had, had a great path to be plant manager there, which, you know, is kind of the job that I have now. And, um, you know, so the whole idea of, of going down to Crucian was I just wanted to learn, you know, I wanted to learn. I didn't know much about rum, didn't know much, you know, about the process and, uh, in particular, didn't know much about the culture. And then, you know, let's face it, it's in the Virgin Islands. So, you know, to have an opportunity like that, but the whole idea was I was coming back to makers. It was three years. I mean, trust me, if this wasn't an assignment, uh, and it was open-ended, I don't know that I would have done it. I don't know that my wife would have allowed me to do it, you know, because that's just a big change for, you know, your family, your kids. So, um, when the assignment was up, I got shipped to another beam facility. So it wasn't makers. And, you know, that I, I, I went to Jim Beam Frankfurt, which is a great place. I mean, it's the old yeah. granddad facility and all that, but they hadn't distilled there in years. And it's, it's 100% a bottling operation. And so, you know, they asked for my, my help to go there to run the plant because, you know, we had closed uh, uh, the Jim Beam Cincinnati plant, which had been in operation. We had bought Pinnacle Vodka. So we were moving all that production down from White Rock Distillers into the Jim Beam Frankfurt plant. And the whole plan was, I was just going to be there a year. They're like, listen, this transition's going on, all hands on deck. We'd love to have you there. I moved, we moved right back into our house in Bardstown because we didn't, obviously we didn't sell it because we knew it was an assignment going to the Virgin Islands. So I was driving back and forth from Bardstown to Frankfurt. And even though it was only supposed to be a year, about seven months into it, they were, man, uh, we might want to make this longer than that. And so the feeling that I had then was I'm no longer in control of my career, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Loved Frankfurt, loved the operation, loved the people. And struggled with the fact that it didn't have a distillery. I just did. I mean, that's you know kind of what I I grew up with and and where a lot of my passion was. So it just so ha- you know like that that seven months into the Frankfurt, um, I got contacted by a recruiter for Heaven Hill, uh, and this was at a time when you know obviously Parker had been diagnosed with ALS. Craig was involved, but Craig was going to be doing a little bit more. You know, Craig Beam a little bit more travel on that side. Plus, Craig had a trucking company and he wanted to focus on that. So they asked me to come in as plant manager to run the Bernheim operation down at, uh, you know, down in West Louisville. And so I, I did, I'm like, I've got, you know, I, I need to be back at a distillery and I've got to feel like I'm back in control of my career. You know, somebody else isn't telling me what my next opportunity is. So I did. So in 2013 is when I moved over to Heaven Hill as the plant manager of the Bernheim operation is really kind of the first time I got to know Fred pretty well because, you know, Fred was doing a lot of research, um, came to that. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal distillery. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a shame that, you know, it's not on the bourbon trail. Maybe someday, um, they'll be able to yeah, do that. It's a massive, impressive, like operation, industrial and powerhouse. Well, yeah. and you were, you helped with, did you help with the expansion too? I'm oh yeah. To, I, yeah. I, I, so I, yeah, the so, expansion yeah. was definitely my, my project. And so that's where we did the podcast, right? right. I mean, didn't you guys come? Yeah. Yep, you guys came right. to mm-hmm. Bernheim back then. So, um, and then, you know, it's also one of those things where when you're in an opportunity like that, like make the best of it. Right. So, uh, it just, you know, unfortunately, you know, you know, Parker with ALS was, was unable to do any travel or anything like that. And that's where the Shapira family came and said, Hey, listen, we'd love for you to take on a role as master distiller, um, you know, for a lot of the marketing stuff. And, and, and let's face it, and I've talked about it before, the, the title master distiller is phenomenal, right? I mean, it's something that 
when somebody asks you to do that or you know they give you that title, there's a lot of pride involved in that. But the reality is the bulk of that title is marketing related. It gives you credibility to go out and talk about what we do and how we do it. And people are genuinely interested. You know, if I just came out, I mean, my other title is plant manager. Well, plant manager doesn't have the same pole as master <laughs> distiller. And, yeah, and, like, a, um, like a chemical plant, like rat poison yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it could go <laughs> any direction. So, you know, that's when I took on a role as master distiller with Heaven Hill. And then internally, I actually got another promotion, which was as vice president of operations over um, all the production facilities, because obviously Heaven Hill does more than than um, than just whiskey and was a part of the executive leadership team with the Shapira family. So it was great. You're right. I mean, it was an unbelievable opportunity and I was enjoying the hell out of it. And it just, you know, it was the summer of 18. I kind, you know, I got kind of a nondescript text from Rob Samuels and I'd worked with Rob, but I really had worked more with Bill mm -hmm. um, when I left to go to Cruzion, which was 2010. And so, you know, I didn't know Rob that well, and he was like, hey, you know, just would, would love to talk and catch up. And so in conversations with Rob, that's where he's like, hey, listen, man, you know, we'd love for you to come back to Maker's Mark, not just as master distiller, but also plant manager. Because to me, it's, you know, if without the plant manager role, I don't know that I would take the master distiller role. But I also understand how important that role is, right? So, you know, Rob and I did, did a lot of talking about coming back. And, and the one thing about Maker's, the day-to-day -day at Maker's, you know, outside of the brand is phenomenal. I mean, you know, the people that we have there, it is a community. I mean, the bulk of our employees, all of our employees are from Marion County. The bulk are from Loretto, which is a town of 400. We have 240 employees. So, you know, we have a lot of families, you know, generational that, that have worked at Makers or do work at Makers. And then a lot of the things that we were doing before I left that I always thought would be pressure tested as you grew, that, you know, if you're going to bastardize how you do things because you've let the accountants in the in the room these things would have changed you know whether that's going from roller mill to hammer mill whether that's a larger batch size whether that's going in the barrel at 125 instead of 110 like we do whether that's stopping barrel rotation but in particular hand dipping bottles and you know it's one of those things i'm like well if they you know the finance guys have taken over then those are the things you can look at and so in you know in 2018 i was just looking at the volume numbers and what i've quickly calculated was shit they're in hand they hand dipped 25 million bottles last year because they were still hand you know we were still hand dipping obviously and so it was all those things and as i think about um you know finishing out my career over the next who knows 10 to 20 years i love the day-to-day -day. i love it i mean i love you know pulling in the parking lot you know that site is just a, a super beautiful special site and then just to be able to walk through the facility and i mean everybody whether they drink makers or not, all the employees there are all in. And, and, and let's face it, I mean, it's a great place to work. I mean, there's not a bad job in our industry. There's not. Heaven Hill was phenomenal. Makers is phenomenal. You name all the others. I mean, it, we're the luckiest people in the world to be a part of this industry. And makers is just one of those that I care about the day-to-day. -day. And, and the day-to-day -day there is just, it's, it's, it's weird to be at a place where you could be in a shitty mood, right? Driving in, from, you know, driving into work that day or, or whatever. But I mean, it's, it's one of those things that as soon as I get there, I'm like, oh shit, this is great. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's a lot of jobs. It's the exact opposite. You know, you get out of your vehicle, you're like, God damn, I can't wait till six o'clock. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the exact opposite. So it's not, it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to leave Heaven Hill. I think it was just the opportunity to come back knowing that I could somewhat finish, you know, where I had started in, in the role that I have. 
And um, and trust me, man, there's not a day goes by that I don't miss Heaven Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, I do miss it. I miss the people. Phenomenal brands, right? You look at their whiskey portfolio and everything that they do. They're family owned. I mean, there's not, there's not, trust me. And there are a lot of people look at me and go like, what the shit were you thinking? Man? <laughs> How could you leave a company like that? And it's, it's just that, you know, I've, I've just always felt kind of this bond with makers and, and just um, what we do there in the people there. It really is, you know, about the people, because at the end of the day, we're all manufacturing sites. It can be glamorous, it can be everything else because of the distilleries, but we do run seven days a week, 24 hours a day in the distillery like a lot of factories do the bottling line. It's a bottling line, right? I mean, it's, it's the part of the operation nobody wants to talk about because it's not as glamorous, but I mean, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's a big part of what we do and to watch people. I mean, I know it, it sounds like I'm kind of summing everything up just to one little example, but I think the dipping the bottles is a huge one because the people that run the lines, when they're dipping bottles, it's not like we're running the line slow. I mean, these lines are running 150 bottles a minute. So each dipper is dipping one bottle every five seconds. That's phenomenal, right? I mean, can you imagine? And then, I mean, there's pressure to that too because, yeah. oh, damn it, you got to finish this one up because there's one right behind <laughs> Don't it. Don't slow up the line. But they're doing it and they're smiling, they're laughing, they're talking. Visitors come in, they'll engage with them. It's just, it's very unique. And so, you know, I don't know if there was really, it really was never about leaving Heaven Hill. It really was about going back to makers and just thinking about the next, you know, 10 to 20 years. So- I don't know if that fully no, answers no, the question. Up, but, uh, I, think it, I think it definitely does. I, I would imagine as you, because traveling is a, a part of this yeah. role and stuff like that. And I know when, you know, my wife worked at Heaven Hill, they say like, Heaven Hill, Heaven Hill. What is, when you talk to actually regular common folk, like, what is Heaven yeah. Hill? And you have to like explain like, oh, these are the brands. I'm like, ah, oh, I get it. But now you're like, oh, Maker's Mark. You're like, oh, absolutely. Everybody knows yeah, the Red Wax. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, yes. And, you know, and what would the cool, the cool thing about Heaven Hill you know, the last couple of years there, there was that real push to, man, let's be proud of our name, right? The Heaven Hill name. Because most people, when they would think about Heaven Hill, they think about, I mean, like I did back in college, I drank the hell out of 175 Heaven Hill vodka, right? Because it's like $7. And so when people were thinking about Heaven Hill, they were thinking about, you know, a lot of the value stuff. But when you looked at like the whiskeys that they were putting out, not just the ones that everybody knows, whether it's Evan Williams, Elijah Craig, those, but like the Heaven Hill whiskeys that they were putting out, whether it was the white label, the green label, they were phenomenal. But you're right. Yeah. it's just the, the connotation just yeah. wasn't there for a lot of people. So it sounded like maybe Rob, well, obviously with the growth of whiskey and like they could kind of see like, all right, we have a good thing going, but we really need to put some gasoline and we need somebody that can help control this fire to get us to that after we pour this gasoline on. Well, there's also Greg. Greg was... um you know, he was a great master distiller makers and, you know, he moved on over to the, the Booker's yeah. gig. So what happened first? Did they, did, did he take a position there and they were looking to fulfill that? Yeah. Greg was, was offered the opportunity to move to the beam side of the business and they've got, you know, obviously the two, uh, distilleries with Claremont and Booker. No. And I think Greg, you know, Greg was looking, you know, just to kind of expand, you know, his, what he was responsible for, but also to learn a little bit too. And, you know, Greg, and Fred and Freddie were, you know, really good friends. And I think, you know, I just think it was a, you know, an opportunity for Greg to do that. So yeah, that was not, that was not me coming in and Greg leaving. That was literally Greg wanted to pretty much kind of move on and move up um, and take on a little bit more. And uh, Greg's great. I've known Greg forever. I was at Greg's house, not last night, the night before. Um, But, um, and I think, I think he loves it over there, especially working with Fred and Freddie. 
And, you know, Man, those, I, those I can just are, see that trio to get together yeah. and drinking. Yeah. Greg can hit, he can put them down. <laughs> Greg enjoys putting them down. I enjoy putting them down with Greg. Yeah. He's hard to it's, keep up with. It is. It's a good crew, man. It's a really good crew. So I guess another question about just career path and career growth and transitioning. Did you ever think to the point where like, when you're at Heaven Hill at being the master distiller there, like, this is it. Like, there's really nowhere else to go from here. I mean, do you feel like coming back now here to Maker's Mark, are you like, okay, like, maybe this is it. Like at some point, I think it must be hard for somebody going through trying to, you know, tread their career path, trying to be a distiller to work their way at the master distiller. There's got to be a ceiling somewhere. It, listen, from the distillery side, if master distiller is not the ceiling, I don't know what is, and I wouldn't want what is, but you're absolutely right. Kenny. I mean, I, it was an interesting, you know, when, when I sat in a room with Max Shapira and Alan Latz, which is his son-in-law, and Alan runs, you know, um, he was COO. And they asked me to, you know, take on the role as master distiller. Like within the first couple minutes, that was the exact conversation we had. I'm like, listen, this is a great opportunity. I love it. But what does that mean as far as growth um, within the operation? And they were like, well, this is, you know, don't worry about that. Like, this is, you, you know, you're obviously, you know, distilleries, you run the distillery, you're doing all that work. We know that you've got this covered, but don't think that that's going to stunt anything on the operation side. And they were true to their word because, you know, it was probably about a year later is when, you know, they promoted me to vice president of operations, which was over, you know, all the operations for Heaven Hill, not just, you know, the Bernheim distillery. So now from there, yeah, it's pretty much cat. I mean, when you're reporting into the family and it's, you know, a, a company that's been owned and operated by a family for 85 years. And the first non-beam to hold the time. Yeah. No, that's a bit, I mean, trust me, you know, when, when I think back about, um, you know, proudest points in my career, it has to be that. It, it's because of they, you know, they asked me to do it, right? Mm. And not only that, but they asked me to do it in the footsteps of Parker and working with Craig and yeah, I mean, you can't help, but, you know, kind of get caught up in that. And that, that was a huge, huge, huge deal for me. But, but I think you also realize too, that, um, you know, do you have to be focused on the next big thing? I think for me, that's come with age mm. a little bit. Am I capped right now? I mean, I report into Rob Samuels, <laughs> I mean, uh, potentially, but it's not, I mean, you know, if I were to retire today, I'd be, I'd be happy. Uh, and there would what? be the old Potter distillery coming out here. <laughs> consulting. Yeah, right. I mean, you get, and trust me, you do get uh, a lot of feelers, you know, about people wanting, you know, seeing if you're interested about starting your own distillery. Oh, really? So people reach out to you all the time to yeah, I mean, away? yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it probably at least four or five times a year, I'd say. I mean, it's, you know, you have people that, you know, that have the money to back, but, you know, don't necessarily have the experience or expertise to mm. do it. And, and it, it is, it's fascinating. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I would never say it's not, I would never say it's not anything uh, you just brush to the side and not think about. Um, for me, I don't know. I mean, I just really like being a part of something that's been around since 1954. And then, you know, when you see the impact that, that the brand has just locally for the community, cause they're very, I mean, they're very, very good paying jobs you know, we're in an area of Kentucky where the cost of living isn't that high. So you see how people can live and, and, you know, how their family can come on board. And then I don't know. I mean, I see both sides of it. Trust me. I do yeah. see both sides of it, but you know, just having what I have at, at makers, it, that's kind of what you aspire to be. So if you've got it and I know it's not my name on the bottle, but I've never been about that. Like it, 
I love, obviously, you know, I want everything to do with the liquid, the quality of the liquid, how people respond to the liquid. But, you know, as far as having my name on the liquid, that's, it's never been something that, you know, I've really thought too much about. Uh, too you, much. you have a potter's yeah. name at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe, you, maybe there's slight potters. It's good. It's, it's going to, it's going to have to be yeah. a decanter, like a pot. You know, sometime. But uh, I I wanted to, uh, you know, talk to you about like I've in watching Rob like come in and take over for his father and, you know, seeing how he's managed the company. I have to say, man, I am so proud of him and how good of a job he has done. What's it what's it what's it been like, you know, working with Rob? Because he's the first couple of years he was in his father's shadow. Now Rob is his own man for sure, and everybody in being some Torre knows it. Yeah, I mean, you know that that has been yeah that was one of the interesting things coming back because you know as I said, I had primarily worked for Bill and Rob was involved in the business, but it's a little more on the commercial side, right? I mean, just cutting his teeth on that side, do it the right way to do it, you know, instead of just coming in and you know you're 30 years old and they hand you the reins. No, it was literally do this, do this, do this, and Rob did all those things, and they're two different people. Yeah. Um, but with the same ambition and the same goals, they go about it differently. Rob is, you know, just Rob is a thinker. He sits back a little bit. Anybody that's ever been around Bill or worked for Bill, Bill's, you know, just somebody that's Bill's going to tell you exactly what's on his mind. <laughs> right. And yeah, so he, he seems like more of a, a dreamer, a, a visionary like type. And Rob kind of is more like analytical, you know, he, like, let's think I, about it. I think that's a good way to put it. And I, I do think that yeah, I mean it's he. I mean he's all in, and and I think um, he's adapted his style. I mean, there's no way you can't uh, just like you know me at Heaven Hill with Parker or, or anything like that. I mean, it's impossible. You can't you know he can't fill Bill's shoes, but he doesn't need to, right? Like he's cutting his own path, and it's a different business. Yeah. I mean, as you guys know, I mean, just the change in over the last ten years has been phenomenal. Yeah, and I think Rob is. You done go from a, begging people to come visit you to like, all right, how do we manage these oh, people visiting us? Just and how do we? I mean, I joke about you know, even when I was assistant master stiller back in Makers, you know, around two two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. I mean, you know, our bourbon educations and tastings, I'd spend thirty minutes explaining to people the rules of bourbon, and they would blow their minds when I'd say, you know, it doesn't have to be made in Kentucky. Bullshit! Lying to me, that can't be true. It's like no. It, I mean, now, I mean, if I couldn't tell you the last time I really talked about the rules of bourbon, if I were to start out an education or a tasting explaining the rules of bourbon, I'd fully expect somebody to come up, punch me in the face, and be like, "Man, don't insult our intelligence, right?" I, I mean, wouldn't know about the dry yeast versus propagated yeast, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. right. No, and that's true. That is. I mean, that is the level of engagement you get now. And it's, I love it. I mean, you know, anymore, especially over the last year, because we've had to turn to so many things virtually, I would much rather show up and just be like, all right, let's open it up for questions and just go with that. And honestly, that is a lot of what I do now. You know, you might come with about 10 minutes of what you think you want to cover and then just let people go because people are, when people have a genuine interest and fascination in what we do, and you're trying to be transparent about it. it makes it easy. Like mm-hmm. I don't know why there's so many. I don't know that it exists anymore. But there was a time that if you asked somebody what their mash bill was, they'd be, "Oh my God, how dare you!" <laughs> Pretty sure you're still trying to get it out of the beams yeah. over yeah, there. Yeah, beam, you? beam, and uh, wild turkey still. <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, and, it's, and I, you know they all have the reasons. I just you know there's so many variables involved in the making whiskey. And mash bill is a part of that. And Fred and I have talked about this before. Just you take all those variables and you multiply them together and you're like, man, okay, it it plays a part. 
But if if somebody wants to take our mash bill and try and go make our style of whiskey, go for it. Shit, call me up. I'll give you pointers throughout the way. But there are so many things that have to be identical. Yeah, that, that I mean, you it's can't near, replicate. It's, it's near yeah. impossible. That did, I did. Speaking of questions, out of question about about yourself. So, what do you think it is about yourself? Like, what qualities or what like tactics do you have as a master distiller that makes you attractable? You know, to these big names, like. What do you think that you add to the table at Maker's Mark? Or is this a job? Like are you interviewing him right now? <laughs> I am. Are you going to ask me to start no. a distillery? Well, after this? I, I guess, I guess, I guess, where I'm coming from that is like most people think. All right, they think distiller. Okay, he must make the whiskey mm-hmm. and must taste it. Whereas there's this whole other, and maybe you can talk lead into that. My other question is about talk about the people that that make up a master distiller too, yeah, not just no, you, but but everything that else is not just making and tasting the whiskey. Yeah. I mean, and that's a great point. And it is something I try to, I go out of my way to try to explain when we're talking about the master distiller role itself. You know, so, you know, the, the one thing, you know, with, with the, the title, right, master distiller, I look at my number one job. Well, actually there's two. One is to educate. You know, it's, that is just something that comes with it. I'm, I'm okay with that. If you told me coming out of college that I would be, you know, sitting in front of 300 people talking about what I do or how we do things, I'd be like, man, that sounds miserable. (laughs) Um, but you kind of understand why it's necessary and people are, are genuinely interested, but the, the role master distiller for me is from a production standpoint is protecting the quality of the whiskey and then making sure you know, especially in an operation like ours, when you're running 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that the people in the distillery have the tools and everything that they need to do the job that they can do. The reality is, you know, I believe we've got 18, you know, operators in our distillery. They're all master distillers. I mean, they all can run every job. They can run the mill, the mash tub, the still. They can do, you know, all the work uh, required for fermentation. They you know, maybe they don't want to get out in front and talk about it, but they're, they're true master distillers. And that's what I tell some of these people, um, that come asking about, you know, uh, starting a new distillery. I'm like, man, I can help you. I certainly can. But I mean, we've got 18 people that probably be good at that. So, you know, it's just, there's so many people involved and, you know, can I sit at the table? Yes. I mean, I, I think one of the important things is, is that the title is based in operations. I think that's important. I think probably a lot of the people you all have talked to and built relationships with are people that, whether they have the title or don't have the title, are rooted in operations. Um, one, because the knowledge base is there, but two, because it's you know there's a real passion. How long should someone be in the kind of operations role before they take that title, master distiller? If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon. The farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. 
Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. How long should someone be in the kind of operations role before they take that title master distiller? Man, that's a tough one, Fred. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, I, I think it's when someone deems you ready, whether that's somebody within your own company that started the brand, Mm -hmm. you know, that is, that has hired you for that. Um, you know, I know people have talked about there needs to be a, you know, some type of certification and I don't, I don't know that I necessarily agree with that because there, there are other things involved. For me, I think it's, uh, you know, just come in willing to learn, engage, reach out. I mean, we all love to talk about what we do. We all love to share things that we see in operations and whether or not there's commonality if, if we're having issues. Because, you know, some of us source, like when you're talking malt and things like that, a lot of times they come from the same operation. So if you're having an issue, hell, shit, somebody else might be having the same issue. So why not engage with that? But Right. It's, it's a good question. I, I just think it's, I don't think it's a title you ever give to yourself. If it's a title you've given to yourself, I don't know how genuine that is, but if it's a title that's kind of bestowed upon you or somebody says, you know what, this is important. And maybe it's not rooted in operations. Maybe it is about telling the story and, um, you know, just being out, you know, consumer facing public facing and they're ready. I think that's, uh, do I think the title's been watered down? Absolutely. I do. I mean, I just think that, um, you know, there are people that have the title that don't have distilleries. That's a little difficult to me. If you're going to have the title as master distiller, you should at least have a distillery. Um, but now in their defense, mm-hmm. they're bottling the exact same recipe as their great, great grandpa <laughs> that happens to be the same as MGP ingredients. I mean, so that 95 in, five is pretty prolific. It's yeah. in their blood. A lot of grandparents with that in their recipe. Blood. It is. And, and listen, I mean, and I, you know, I would never, I mean, they, they in all of those brands in the way that they do it and sourcing and all that has been super important. I mean, right there, you know, makers doesn't grow at the rate that we grew at. If it's not things like that, that have drawn more people into, you know, whether it's bourbon, but American whiskey. I mean, I mm-hmm. think it's super important, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, how we've gotten here and it's all related. And, and of course you all have a 12 or 15 year old uh, bottled and bond coming out <laughs> later this year, right? Oh, Fred. <laughs> well, I'll I'll just I'll just I'll distract you from that question. Uh, no, it's not. Fred's been asking the whole time. Trust uh, me, it would be good. I, I, I mean, I seriously, if you all would just put out like something 12 years old or older, I know it used to be in your overage tasting. It would win every d- damn award there is. And You're right. I mean, when <laughs> when I had I had uh, Bill Samuels, this is where all this comes from. Bill Samuels. Uh, I don't know that I've heard this direct from you. I'm interested to hear your story. All right. So Bill Samuels comes on uh, the, uh, does the Legend Series with me at the Kentucky Derby Museum. And 
we were actually having problems selling tickets. It's kind of weird. Like it was, it was the time of year or something. And he said, all right, I've got something. I, I know what to do. He's like, I will, we'll bottle up some 12 year old that we have and uh, that'll help sell some tickets. And then we, we go on the, we go on some TV stations talking about, he's like, yeah, we're going to be tasting 12 year old makers, Mark tickets sold out like immediately <laughs> we get in the crowd we do this taste up and he's like talking down the 12 year old like it's not any good and i said bill you're wrong this stuff is great <laughs> and i asked the crowd i was like all right let's vote who likes the you know the standard makers mark you know everyone loves i was like do you like the makers 12 year old more every hand went up he's like and bill goes like you guys are like fucking crazy. <laughs> he said something you're, like that. You're just wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome that he brought it. I, I yeah. didn't realize he yeah. did that. Yeah, That's so it's good. all his fault, not mine. So that makes me think of a question about makers and someone in the operations, you know, someone who's fanatic about operations. It seems like a company like Makers would be like an operations man's like dream because it's all about consistency. How can we refine it to like perfection? You know, it's make the same recipe, same, don't mess it up. And- Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that I get asked, especially um, leaving Heaven Hill and coming back to Makers, which is, you know, obviously uh, Heaven Hill has a lot of different expressions. We ran five primary mash bills that led to a lot of great whiskeys, right? There's The thing with Makers for me, there's a lot of that and it's awesome and we do some of it, right? You know, whether it's our wood finishing series, whether it's the evolution of Private Select, whether it's, you know, there's just a lot of different things. But man alive, I mean, I... I take great pride and it, I get a lot of fulfillment out of making sure we're still doing things the same way, right? Since 1954, for the most part, when we did our first barrel. I love that. I love the idea of protecting the heritage and the legacy because, I mean, let's just say some of that changed, right? One, it, you know, probably not good for the brand, but do I want to be proud about 15 years from now, somebody says, oh, well, what if we went back to doing this? And I was like, oh, that's awesome. That's great. Well, I mean, you know, let's, keep doing what we're doing. Maybe we don't get huge credit for that because it's not a big talking point, but at the end of the day, I think all of that is super important. And I love the fact that we are still doing things pretty much the same way since we did that first barrel and even did the first bottle, um, in 58, 59, when we did that first bottle, that was hand dipped. If you've seen, I know Fred, you've seen the very first bottle of makers, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. I mean, it looks almost identical to the bottle that we do today. So even from a package standpoint, it's very similar. What are the challenges of trying to keep that integrity when you're trying to meet the demand and scale it at the point that it is oh, now? Oh, it's, it's the main reason why we don't have a 12-year-old. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, classic makers. Way to go, Fred. There's your answer. <laughs> no, it is. But I mean, blame, blame you and consumer demand. <laughs> but, it, I mean, it is a, I mean, it's, a real, it's a real thing. I mean, you know, um, classic makers on average is anywhere between, you know, we're five year, nine months. Um, and right now we do, we're dumping some barrels that are probably about seven and a half years old. So you're right. And I mean, we, you know, Makers, the brand has been on allocation for years. Um, we don't, we don't export much. You know, the bulk of our market is still in the U.S. And so it's a, you know, when those things we know, like, listen, I mean, I know 12 year old Makers would be good. Do I, I would never say it was bad. Is it different than, you know, what we're used to in our taste? Sure it is, but doesn't mean it's bad. It's just different. But to set those things aside means you're pulling back you know, some of the classic and it, and it was a lot of the things we got into at heaven Hill too, because, you know, you had one mash bill mm -hmm. that would, would fuel probably a six different, brands. six different ages. <laughs> right. And you always had to play, you know, make those decisions of, okay, this, they all tasted different, but they were all the same mash bill. So it's, you know, I just, 
I enjoy that part of it. Um, you know, we are trying to scale up. I mean, we, you know, we are, we're still, you know, the number three bourbon in the world. Not that we care about that, but that's, you know, that's a pretty big deal. And it's just making sure as we grow, we grow the right way. And I think that's the key. And, um, I think we have, you know, it's probably only been in the last, you know, when I left to go to Crusion, I, you know, I was obviously intimately involved in, in coming up with Makers 46. And that was myself, Kevin Smith, who was master distiller at the time. I was assistant master distiller and Bill. And that's when, I mean, for 55, 50 years, 55 years, we'd only done one thing. And then all of a sudden Bill shows up and all I'd ever heard is, you know, don't fuck up my parents' whiskey. That's all, <laughs> that's all you ever heard. And he was right because we sold every drop. It's all on allocation. So when Bill came and said that, you know, he wanted to kind of create his own version of Makers and his taste vision, and that led to pretty much where we are today with wood finishing, I think it has kind of changed our philosophy a little bit of this is the only thing we do and this is how we do it. But at the same time, as, as we do these other things, they'll always be kind of done in the spirit of makers. So I think we've come a long way. Um, we have, you know, I, I know Fred knows Jane and, and, and you guys probably know Jane Bowie, but Jane's really been leading our innovation. She pretty much created with Rob the private select program and all the other things. And we finally have an innovation department. So that's big for us. Um, spearheaded by Jane. Yeah, you took down the I, old the old tagline of we are rooted in stubborn tradition. <laughs> <laughs> we have. And it's and it's fun and it's interesting. And it's, you know, it's led to, you know, things like Yeah, the private selection is so much fun for a barrel pick. If anyone hasn't done it, it's it's because you get to make your own basically your own maker's blend yeah. with different finishing states. The it's only really problem cool. the only problem with it is is I keep tasting ones I'm like, damn it, I wish I had done that one. No, oh, no. I wish I had done like, that one. It is you go amazing, in, it's funny yeah. you go in there and you have like, all right, I'm gonna make something that's unique and it's gonna be this and then you start and you're like you're like, well, wait a minute, let me see what other people have done. <laughs> and then you start going off that and seeing what people that had something that was successful versus trying to make this like bold mocha, you know, makers or whatever. Do you have but, a do you have a favorite uh private select? Um, you know, you know what's funny was when I first came back, you know, we weren't, you know, I didn't I knew the private select program, but I didn't really fully understand what it was. It is a difficult and thing to explain to it, people. It, it is. Done it. It's it's a very, you know, it's 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 a it's very tactile. Like you almost have to go through it, but it's like a chemistry experiment as yeah. you sit. And through. you have to allocate like eight hours for the yeah. day. A lot of drinking. <laughs> there's a lot of sampling and a lot of drinking. I like that one. Um, no. <laughs> so there's kind of uh, one is I love what we call the Bill Samuels Junior Private Select, which is basically 46 cask. So you know, the Private Select was born out of you know everything we learned creating Makers 46. And, you know, that's where they use the 10 French oak stave. So that's part of the combination you can use to build private select. So when they asked Bill what private select barrel he wanted, he just said, I just want 1046 staves at cast strength. So that that's really, that's kind of my favorite, but I'm a big fan. I love the P2 stave. It's the only American oak stave in the combination. And I think, you know, if anybody had the 2020 wood finishing series, that was uh, a little take of, of American oak with heavy vanilla. I just love the heavy vanilla that comes out of that. Mm -hmm. um, never been a big fan of the Mocha stave, and that's the most popular stave, which we are retiring that stave. That stave's going away. Um, really? Yeah. Wow. 
Wow. So that's going away this year. Why? Um, because Why? it's the most popular stave. Yeah, so hey, yeah. everybody loves it. Well, yeah, yeah. Let's, get, Let's rid get rid of it. Of it. Look, I know the new throw, maker's throw for a loop. Yeah. You want 12-year-old? Never going to happen. You suck. <laughs> you like you, the mocha stave? It's so, gone. Yeah. <laughs> you, you find something you like, it's out. Well, <laughs> it's Yeah, y'all keep talking about it. We're just going to take it away. <laughs> the, the caveat to that is if you've built a barrel with us, and you use the mocha stave, you will always have access to it. So it, it's not going away fully. So if you've built a barrel, now so any new barrel will to entice people to now, create now, new expressions. Now everyone's going to be coming in there. Here's a hundred dollars. I know you yeah, heard about this stave. Now you know. The, the mocha stave barrels are going to be worth more. It's a good. I mean, listen. I I think a lot of it is. Um, I mean, you guys are good tasters. Uh, a lot of people they're very influential when you're tasting, right? I mean, it's just because you get. What happens when people do barrel selections and specifically private select, they end up bringing people with them that just want to experience. Like it's such a fun experience. They may not taste a lot of whiskey, right? So I think people would see, oh, they got a mocha stave. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah. And then, you know, but it's, and it's a good, trust me, it's a good stave. It's a bit of a dry chocolate. For me, it has a dry finish to it. And I like creamy. Like I just like a creamy kind of finish. Yeah. Um, but you can, I mean, you know, you can use that mocha stave in combination to create a lot of different things, but that mocha stave. I'm trying will, to think of the stave. It's like, it, ha- it is creamy, but kind of makes it like, taste like a dusty, like almost like a butterscotch. I'm trying to remember which stave that Probably was. Cuvée. Cuvée. Yeah, that's cuvée. it. That's yeah, it. Yeah. I remember I, I was like, I'm going to make like 10 cuvées. Yeah. And, and pe- just, yeah. It didn't translate, but it was good. Yeah. People have done that. You know, people have done that. I kind of want to do like uh, a taste off now, like get all of the private selects. And like we have a couple here somewhere. There's a lot to go through, though. I know there's so many. I will do it for America. (laughs) So there's that's gonna be a long YouTube series. (laughs) I can take tomorrow off. I mean, yeah, yeah. Have everybody. I'm on glass five hundred and seventy-two. We'll just post up in the library there because they're all sitting there, right? We are most of fourteen-hour podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No breaks. We're live streaming here, and we're only three percent of the way through. Can't wait till can't wait till Lauren edits that one. She'll. She'll really love us. <laughs> you know, as we kind of like round this down a little bit. Uh, oh, wait, is it time to we're, wrap we're, up? We're getting close here. We're going to, wow, you know, yeah. I know. This, this, the hour flies by. It really does. You know, I, I kind of want to bring it back into your, you know, your role moving back over. Mm-hmm. And what was it like either re-onboarding or when you came back, you're like, it's exactly as I remember. Yeah, it's like locker there. It was, yeah, the old locker, you know, went to that wall. He, you know, drew his height on the board. And he's like, he's like, that's where I was. Hell, he's got shorter. What the <laughs> Gain some weight. Uh, man, good question. I mean, it's, uh, it really was like coming home. Um, different because we had a lot more people. And, you know, when I left to go to Corrosion, we had 80 employees. So when I came back in 2018, we had about 230 employees. So it was, you quickly go from knowing everybody to, oh my God, I don't know anybody. But then you talk to them, they're like, oh, I'm so-and-so's kids. Like, oh yeah, okay, right, yeah. Um, so different, but the same. Different in that, you know, it's it's hard. Like, I, you know, I, I like to be out in the operation. I like to talk to people. It's not as easy to, you know, like we would have our Christmas party at Mordecai's in Lebanon. Oh yeah. Right. Love so that. not a big place. Well, we can't have our Christmas party at Mordecai's in Lebanon yeah. anymore. So it's things like that, or I'm sorry, Springfield, not Lebanon. Um, it's just things like that. Like, how do you get the people together? You know, how can you literally be out in the plant, be front facing, um, get to know everybody on a personal level? That's what becomes hard. That's what's different is, you know, really trying to, to 
build relationships with people at the plant. And just because we have, you know, we do have quite a few people. Having worked at Bernheim and Makers and Crusion and definitely seeing, you know, how the Booker's plant runs. I mean, you have, you have like this, this portfolio of knowledge of how facilities operate. And anybody who knows distilleries knows that Bernheim, you have to really figure that distillery out. Tell me what is the, what is the big, big difference between operating uh, Bernheim versus Maker's Mark and what, what time of year does Maker's operate best and what time of year does Bernheim operate Man. best? Um, Fred, I think the, you know, the big difference when you get into those distilleries, you know, the, one of the things that, you know, when I was at Bernheim, it would, it would, I mean, really chat my ass when I'd hear people talk about, well, we got this craft distillery over here doing this or that. And I'm like, well, goddamn, we're a craft distillery. <laughs> well, no, you can't be, you guys do, you know, a thousand barrels a day or, or I mean, even more than that, really. 1200, you know, 1300 barrels a day, I believe when I left, but the process is the same, right? You still have to put all the attention into the quality of the grains that come in. So you still got to have the same relationship with those farmers, you know, mashing the science behind it. None of it changes. I think the big difference, Fred is when you have an, uh, Oh, in a plant like Bernheim, it's a big one mm -hmm. because it impacts so much liquid. Mm -hmm. yeah. Whereas, you know, at makers, you know, you know, like the, the fermenters at Bernheim are 124,000 gallons. So you can yield about 300, I think it's 350 barrels roughly per fermenter. Whereas, you know, our batch size is closer to 25 barrels. That's where, you know, you, your mistakes in a big facility get multiplied very, very, very quickly. So you have to make sure that you're really paying attention to the data, to the quality side of things. And that's the, the hardest thing, in the, you know, distilleries are great until they're not. And what I mean by that is when you start seeing some upsets in the operation, maybe uh, your yield's dropping a little bit, maybe you're picking up a musty note in the distillate. And you're trying to figure out th the problem with the distillery is there's no quick solution or fix to that because you know when you look at mashing fermentation is usually going to be a, be a minimum of three days and you got to distill it so you might be four days in to figure out you know whether or not that tweak worked but I just think your 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 mistakes are magnified um, in the bigger distilleries but as far as like the people and all that all all incredible the automation's a little bit different obviously mm -hmm. in those bigger facilities so you got to make sure. I think that's the tough thing too, is not relying on all automation. Um, because even though, you know, that screen might be showing you that that valve is open and that pump is on may not be. So it's literally, you gotta, you gotta make sure you're still in tune with the sights and literally the sounds of a distillery. I think if you talk to any distiller, the one thing that they will talk to you about, that's very difficult to explain is that I can walk into a distillery, just like most people, not just master distillers, but people working distilleries. And within the first 10 seconds can kind of tell you how things are going just based on sound. Um, so it's making sure you don't lose that. Uh, as far as time of year, I mean, we all make better whiskey this time of year, mainly because of the temperature and, you know, your water quality is a little bit better just because the water's cooler. You're not, you know, you're always worried about whiskey production in the summertime, mainly because of the quality of the water. You know, if you get any algae blooms or anything like that with the warmer temperatures in a lake or stream, then that's exactly how you can get a musty note in that distillate. Can you control your yeast more in the cool weather or warm versus warm? Uh, I don't I mean, know. I didn't. It depends on the process. I mean, we've come, listen, back in the day, I mean, that's literally why when you talk to how distilleries used to run, they would shut down all of summer. Like they would literally start shutting things down probably in May, stay down through August, September, and then start back up because they, they didn't have really the solutions in the engineering that we have today 
when it comes to whether it's um, chillers that help run the condensers so you can condense, you know, all the alcohol vapor back to liquid, or it's keeping your yeast at a low temperature. Cause that's a big one. I mean, if your yeast, you know, if that temperature starts to climb in your yeast cooler at all, then you're going to be in trouble yeah. I and mean, you're probably going to kill your yeast and then, then, then you're up shit Creek. But, um, but with science, you know, with the way things that, that have evolved today, it's not as important, you know, as long as you have, it's more expensive, you know, in the summertime, your chillers have a larger load because the water coming in is a little bit warmer and there's things like that. But I think the takeaway on that though, Fred, is there's not a lot of differences. Um, I would never, you know, these, the, the bigger guys are doing things very similar. I think they have to, they have to make sure that they don't lose sight of what we've all been accustomed to, which are the sights, sounds, and smells of a distillery. And as long as they're doing that, they, they should be in pretty good. Well, you don't have to walk as many stairs at Maker's Mark <laughs> no, as you, you do in Bernheim. Yeah. I mean, it's, it can be intimidating. I mean, you see, um, you know, we did, uh, that expansion project was the big project I did, um, a little bit before I left and they've got 17, 124,000 gallon fermenters. Those are big ass fermenters. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, you look when you're standing up on, I mean, you guys have seen it when you're standing up on the grating. Yeah. Don't and you're drop looking, your phone in Yeah. There. Don't it's drop like, your phone and don't look down if you're scared of heights. It's like every time I see those tanks, I'm like, why do people get so mad about limit releases? It's just a, another barrel of whiskey. There's 350 <laughs> of them in here. They're making well, it more every day. Well, yeah. and that, you know, that is the other interesting thing too about the larger distilleries is, you know, when you innovate, you're innovating big. Because when you do an innovation batch, like for us, you know, if we're going to, you know, let's say we're going to do something different, maybe we do 10, you know, five fermenters. Uh, so it's a little over a hundred barrels. Those guys, like you can't, the minimum innovation you're probably going to do in big fermenters like that is a hundred barrels. Easy, easy. Well, you got what you wanted. We ended off on like a scientific note. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love talking to Denny cause it's, uh, always, uh, like I said, no one can explain things like he does. Like everyone, a lot of people have the knowledge, but Denny is a, you're a great communicator. I you're re really, that. really great at like talking to us people who can barely read. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, I mean, you know, Fred, you spent a lot of time with us at Bernheim. He was yeah. even riding, you know, he was in the semi trucks. With the grain haulers going back and forth to the farms. And uh, was he like, let me honk the horn. I want to honk the horn. Well, when, he, when he first had reached out about, you know, just, doing research and trying to become more familiar with distillers. Most people are, you know, they want two or three hours. Fred was like, no, I'll take two weeks. If you got two weeks, I <laughs> yeah. mean, it, he was all in. So shit. by the way, that, that, uh, that riding in one of those trucks made me appreciate <laughs> truck drivers. My God. Oh my God. It's painful man. to be in one of those. Things. I want to oh, say, no. thinking back on that, I might be wrong about this. I want to say you were scheduled to go, and then there was a big snowstorm, and it was like, we probably, Fred probably shouldn't be on the interstate with this guy when we've got a foot of snow on the ground. There was yeah. something I can't remember. Yeah, there were, there were a few things we had to work around, but it was, you know, getting to experience the distillery like that was, you know, and this was really before people were, I, you guys weren't even operating yet, and like before, like the media kind of, whiskey media was really mm -hmm. humming. Um, I, Before that's OSHA just, violations and all, all that stuff. stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I just man, that's he had his closed toe shoes on. I admit, yeah. I honestly, I miss those days. That those were my those are the days I cherish most of my career is being in the distillery and. You know. Oh, you're welcome to come to Makers anytime. Now you got to well. When off, I got yeah. when I go to Makers, it's like uh, you know, I'm just like you know, can I just live here? You know, <laughs> oh no, it's, it's, it's one so of the prettiest beautiful. properties. That's on the trail it truly is it truly is so denny thank you again for coming on the show today it's a pleasure to have you if there's a way that people can follow you 
want to know more about you and about makers, what's the best way to do it? If, Holy if, shit. Are you on TikTok yet? No, not TikTok. <laughs> I do have an Instagram account. I am like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not socially, social media ignorant, but um, I'm not very good. I do have an Instagram account. I couldn't even tell you what <laughs> what the call sign is or do we call it that <laughs> call is it a call sign, sign? handle or something like, yeah. yeah my handle it's makers um, mark 12 year old yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't, you're not you're not gonna see <laughs> a lot of activity mark 12 uh from me on that he, but, he uh, posts and ghost you know just well it's an interesting <laughs> i mean you know i think that's been honestly one of the toughest things as you've kind of come up in the industry and people are more interested and you're more visible in the public like i have a facebook account which according to my kids is what the hell you're you're an old man i'm like okay i know i am but it is that mix of family and friends and then people that are friending you. And I friend everybody. Like if you send me a friend request, I'm going to, I'm going to, but it's a, that's yeah, a different one. By the way, it's DP Potter. If you is it? Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> damn, that was a tough one to remember. <laughs> <laughs> that's inactive since. Uh, <laughs> it's, I think it's active because I know people tag me and stuff, but yeah. There you go. You get another 20, 20 more requests to be verified after this goes live. That's I'll right. check it. I'll check it. <laughs> well, again, thank you for coming on the show today. It's always, I, we got to have you back on. We don't need to wait another four years to have you on. Yeah, so we'll do it once a year. We'll make, we'll make it happen. Yeah. This is fun. Thank you again. So make sure you follow him or find him on Facebook. You can just go ahead. And we'll do that 14 hour podcast. Yeah. Loretta. <laughs> make our own, uh, we could do, do, do the our own blend. Yeah. yeah, we could do that. Oh, that'd be a long one. But make sure you follow Bourbon Pursuit wherever you get your podcasts, including YouTube. With that, cheers, everybody, and we'll see you all next week. We want Makers 12. <laughs> <laughs>